This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street and your host for today's podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Miss Jennifer Billington, who's one of the consultant paediatric surgeons at Great Ormond Street. And we're going to be having a conversation about intussusception. So firstly, thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? I suppose for us, it would be that after listening to the podcast today, that people would feel a little bit more confident about assessing a child for intussusception and you know, when do you pick up the phone and speak to a paediatric surgeon and w- at what point do you become worried? Because there's lots of things that interception can mimic or can be mimicked as. And I think just the confidence of identifying it, but also recognizing that children with interception can actually be really poorly. So feeling confident in the resuscitation of that child as well and facilitating a safe transfer for ongoing care. Fantastic. They sound like brilliant learning outcomes. So I guess firstly, could you start by just explaining what intussusception actually is and a bit about how common it is? I can, yeah. So intussusception is a medical word to describe where in really simple terms, where one piece of bowel essentially telescopes into the next. So if you imagine like a kaleidoscope, you can have one piece of upstream bowel for a variety of reasons can end up getting lodged or stuck inside a piece of bowel beyond that. And that's what's called an intussusception. And they usually happen in the the transition from the small bowel into the large bowel, which is an, called an ileocolic intussusception. But they can happen elsewhere. So you can also have ileo-ileal intussusception. So that's where a piece of small bowel invaginates into the piece of small bowel beside it. So there's different types of intussusception. And in terms of the second question is how common it is. It's actually very common. So the average that we know of is around six to seven per thousand children. And there's a peak incidence of around five to seven months. But we see intersection in all age groups, but the classic intersection that people want to know about and read about and see most frequently is in an age bracket of between three months and three years of age. And that's just to reiterate a peak incidence of around five to seven months. But we can see intersection in different age groups. And I think that's probably my first learning point is that what is the age of your child's intersection? That's really important that the classic intersection is under three, but you can have intersection in any age group. But the reasons for a child having intersection may differ if they're in that over three age bracket. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Just going back a bit more to the pathophysiology. So you explained really well, I think, the way it kind of telescopes into each other and how that kind of causes a problem. Is it that that causes obstruction or is it actual telescoping that's the issue or is it a bit of both? So to explain what happens, and I think we can talk about the causes maybe next, but essentially the upstream bowel gets essentially intersected or lodged in the distal bowel or the piece of bowel beside it. So it's like a kaleidoscope. The first thing that will happen is the child will have pain because it, it represents an immediate obstruction. The child will have colicky abdominal pain. So as the bowel is peristalsing, that will create waves of pain. So colicky pain is typically every three to five minutes. 
And that's the first thing a child usually will experience. So if the interception does not resolve, because they can sometimes resolve, the next thing that will happen is that there'll be venous congestion in that bowel that is obstructed or stuck within the distal bowel. And that causes a couple of things to happen. So that can cause swelling and edema. That represents a physical obstruction. So that associated with that may be vomiting and typically it's bilious vomiting or features of a bowel obstruction. So that might be failure to pass wind. It may be distension. And as I said, bilious vomiting. And, and then as, as it progresses, a child then may develop signs of intestinal compromise. So as the bowel becomes congested and it becomes edematous, then you then can have arterial compromise and you may get necrosis or ischemia of the mucosa of the bowel that is stuck. And what happens then is that the mucosa can slough or fall off. And that then goes into the colonic system usually because it's an ileocolic interception. And the child will then start to pass blood per rectum. And that's what they classically call the red currant jelly stool. And what red currant jelly stool actually is, is the mucosa of the bowel that's ischemic, that's stuck. So there's usually the classic triad of symptoms, which is a palpable abdominal mass, red currant jelly stools, and abdominal pain. But only about 25% of children will have all of those three symptoms. So it's really important to have a very high index of suspicion. And even if a child had one of those symptoms that, you know, your radar is on thinking perhaps if they're the right age, they might have interception. So that's the chain of events, if that makes sense. I suppose the last thing to say would be that when you have bowel that is compromised or ischemic, you then can get features of sepsis. So these children can become septic. They can be pyrexic. They have high inflammatory markers. They can have a serous response. And they may be de developing signs of intestinal ischemia or necrotic bowel. And I think that's really important to mention. And alongside that, with the bowel obstruction and the vomiting, the most important thing, and I think that's probably one, will be one of my learning points, is that what children can die of interception, but what kills a child is usually hypovolemia. So it's actually the fluid resuscitation and the fluid management that is the key actually to managing these children safely. So the chain of events has lots of different parts in it, but the, the focus needs to be on effective resuscitation and recognizing that this child may be septic as well. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Going back a little bit, what actually causes the interception to happen in the first place? I think you said that there can be a couple of things that cause yeah. it. Yeah. So I think that leads quite nicely on to the causes. So I think to keep things really simple, it's, I, I like to think about it is in like under threes and over threes. So if we say the under threes, that's like your classic ileocolic intersection. And what that means is that your ileum, which is the last part of your small bowel, gets essentially sucked into the cecum, so that ileocolic. And, and that, that is the classic intersection that happens in the under threes. And the pathophysiology behind that is what we call a physiological lead point. So a lead point is what precipitates that the, the motion of the bowel moving into the neck. And in children, they have what's called Peyer's patches, which is the malt tissue that's present in the terminal ileum. And typically the history for a child under three is that they are a little bit run down. They've got a bit of a viral illness. They've been a bit snotty. And then they get the abdominal pain and all of the symptoms that I've said. And we've been able to demonstrate histologically that actually that the cause of that is these inflamed pears patches and they act as the lead point. And the lead point, if you imagine, it's like having two magnets and it sucks into the next piece of bowel. The dysmotility is slightly altered. And then the inflamed pears patches, which is just a consequence of a viral illness. It's nothing pathological that results in them developing a problem called interception. So that's the under threes typically. 
The over threes, then you need to start thinking about, is there what we call a pathological lead point? And a pathological lead point means that there is something wrong in the bowel that's caused intussusception that's not a payer's patch. So the classic things that we worry about in an older child would be things like a lymphoma. They can have polyps. They can have inflammation of the bowel that can cause intussusception. And they, they cause intussusception in the exact same mechanism but the underlying issue is a problem. So we can identify oncological diagnosis through interception. You can identify things like someone that might have multiple intestinal polyps. You may identify that through a presentation, say like age nine interception. And another key thing to say about that is that when we'll talk about the management, it's usually not possible or very difficult to do an air enema reduction in someone who's over the age of three. The location of a pathological interception or a pathological lead point, they're not classically in the, the distribution of where the payers patches are. So if you've got something like, you know, an unusual ileal interception or an, you can have an ileo-ileocolic interception where there's three pieces of bowel affected, you've got to start thinking about, hang on a second, does this child need further imaging before we rush in and do anything surgically? Because you want to make sure that you're managing that appropriately. So I suppose on two spectrums, you've got physiological lead points under threes, pathological lead points over three. That's not to say there can't be crossover, but that's kind of a really nice way of looking at it. And then you have a kind of the in-betweener. So you can have a Meckel's diverticulum. The Meckel's diverticulum is like an outpouching of the bowel. So it's basically the remnant of the vitellointestinal duct, which is part of the fetal GI tract. And 2% of the population have a Meckel's, which is basically like a little outpouching of bowel. And because the Meckel's diverticulum is like a whole other conversation. But they're typically lined by mucosa that's not native to the bowel. So it's usually lined by gastric mucosa or pancreatic mucosa. And that can become inflamed and that can act as a lead point. And I've seen that in children over the age of three. And everybody's concerned about this pathological lead point. And actually, they just had Meckel's diverticulitis that caused intersection as well. So, you know, it's really important just to think about the age of the child and the different reasons that it might be. And the last thing that can cause intersection, the most common things that we see, will be what's called a post-operative intussusception. And we see this quite a lot, actually. Um, they're typically in children that have had extensive abdominal dissection, particularly retroperitoneal dissection. Retroperitoneal is basically anything at the back of your abdomen. So tumors for Wilm surgery, neuroblastoma. And we have demonstrated that by disrupting the retroperitoneum that, that you're more likely to get transient intussusceptions. So we would often see that post-operatively. And sometimes when you scan children, you see intersections in the small bowel, but they usually come and go and they don't cause problems. So that's kind of the full scope of how you get intersection. But I suppose the take-on points would be, again, but under three, over three, most likely is it physiological or pathological lead point. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. My next question is going to be about risk factors. So I know we've mentioned a few already. So age with the typical peak being, I think, five to seven months. And then you've mentioned Meckel's diverticulum being a risk factor and also post-surgery, so retroperitoneal surgery. Are there any other important risk factors that can predispose to uh, intussusception? One thing that we haven't really spoken about is, so yes to, to the payers patches, yes to just being under three and being then six per thousand. The post-surgery, as we said, having a tube is an interesting thing. So I've seen it a couple of times here that children who have like jejunal feeding tubes have intersected around their tube. And I imagine it's just that the tube has basically altered the motility or the ability of the bowel to peristalsis, And you can have an intersection around a tube. 
it's very uncommon and it wouldn't be at the top of my list of things to think about, but I've seen it. And what we did in that individual was we just removed the tube and then left it 24 hours and then just put the tube back and the problem was fine. And then I suppose other risk factors. So we've spoken about surgery, we've spoken about age, having a meckle. They would be the main things that I would say. There's been a lot of debate around the rotavirus vaccine. There has been reports to suggest that, that it is linked with intersection and there's a slightly higher increase. So it's controversial, but there are some children that we would not give the rotavirus vaccine to surgical patients, or we may delay the rotavirus vaccine because there has been a correlation demonstrating that after the vaccine, that we do see it frequently that a child may come in with interception. Now, it's hard to say whether it's the vaccine or whether they got a viral illness afterwards, but there are patients that we would certainly think about whether we want to give them the rotavaccine at the required time, or if they're recovering from bowel surgery, we may delay that vaccination just to reduce the risk of that, that happening if there is the true association. Oh, right. That's really interesting. I didn't know about that association with rotavirus vaccine. We talked a bit about presentation already. So you mentioned the typical features being the colicky abdominal pain, the red currant jelly stool and the upper abdominal mass. Are there any other ways in which infants might present? So I suppose... Again, you're talking about under three, they're a big population group. So I suppose the first thing usually is that the child will, so we just go from the top down, they typically will have vomiting and it's very likely to be bilious vomiting. So they present classically with a bowel obstruction type picture. They may have colicky pain, but they obviously can't vocalize that. So quite often children just will, might be very irritable. There's this kind of classic description of them, of babies and children drawing their legs up when they've got abdominal pain and it's felt that offers some form of relief. The reason for that, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but that's typically the pattern that they will demonstrate when they've got interception. But I've seen loads of children that do this without interception and I've seen children with interception that don't. So it's just, if you see that, just to think, you know, in the context of other symptoms that may actually be part of what's going on. Going down the system then, so actually the intersection itself, they may present with symptoms of sepsis. So they may present pyrexic. They actually can present really unwell because if a child's been vomiting at home for a number of days and become hypovolemic, they can present with hypovolemic shock. And a lot of them are very, very dry at the time of presentation. So they can have quite significant acid base disturbance. They can also have signs of intestinal ischemia. So they could have a perforation, they, which is unlikely, but possible. They could have, you know, parasitism on examination. And then looking beyond the intersection itself, they often will have altered bowel habits. So I think expecting every child at intersection to have red currant jelly stool, that's not going to be the case. Red currant jelly stools are typically a sign of intestinal ischemia. So it's quite an advanced sign. So if you have a child that may not have stooled, may have had diarrhea, there's lots of kind of vague symptoms or change in bowel habits that, that may or may not be present. So they're the kind of things that the parents would tell you about. So... I suppose there, the things that I've just spoken about would be all the symptoms that a parent may bring a child to A&E for. And I suppose the other thing just to add to that would be that the child quite often might be flat and that might be a part of them being hypovolemic. Are there any important differential diagnoses that can present in a similar way to intersusception? Yeah, I think they're, they're, the intersusception can be very difficult to diagnose. And I think for me, what I want as a paediatric surgeon is for people to be thinking about is this a surgical abdomen or not? And actually the exact problem in the abdomen is, is kind of like the second question is about is this a surgical abdomen or not? And then it's about finding out what the problem is. And I said earlier that only about 25% of children will present with that classic triad of symptoms. So it's very reasonable for you to think of other diagnoses that may or may not suggest that this is definitely intersection. So classic things that will be difficult to differentiate would be something like appendicitis. So 
you can have a child that presented with diarrhea because appendicitis gives you altered stool. They might have bilious vomiting because they're septic, they've got appendicitis, and they might have a palpable mass, which might be an appendix mass. So it can be very difficult to differentiate between the two. But then at that point, you would go back to imaging their age and look at the risk factors. But again, at that point, it's very clear this child has got a surgical abdomen. So it's just a question of what the problem is. And the other thing is that you can have a child that presents, say, for example, with bloody stool that may not have intersection, but they could have a meckle diverticulitis, which is inflammation of a meckle diverticulum, which is present in 2% of the population. As I said, I think I said earlier, but they contain two types of mucosa. So gastric mucosa and pancreatic mucosa, and they secrete acid and therefore get an ulcer. And that's how you get inflammation of a meckle diverticulum. And that can be really painful. It can cause conicky pain. It also can cause intersection, but you can have it without. So a child can present with abdominal dis- discomforts. They, they may have blood in their stool. They may be vomiting. That's worth considering as well. The other things to think about would be like just going through a surgical sieve would be things like colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, terminal ileitis. All of those things can cause abdominal pain, vomiting and blood in the stool. And it may have an ab- abnormal examination. In an older child, obviously the gynecological system, you do need to think about that, about whether there's any like a tubo ovarian abscess. It's unlikely, particularly in a younger child. Any renal pathology. So a child, particularly on the right side, you could have, you know, a, a pyelonephritis, a pyelonephrosis. So I think it's really helpful to go through kind of each of the systems and think like, is there anything else this could be? Because that would help guide your investigations. And I think the last thing to say would be, you know, is it like a medical cause of abdominal pain? Is this like a non-specific abdominal pain? which sometimes it can be things like chest infections causing severe abdominal pain, or the child may have a viral infection and have transient abdominal pain and not actually have any symptoms. But typically they would be the more well child. But again, you know, if you have a suspicion that a child has an interception, then we can go through the investigations um, about, you know, how you would go about investigating that. Yeah. So let's move on to investigation now. What are the kind of gold standard investigations for diagnosing interception? So for me, you know, taking a child through the door in A&E, you don't start with ultrasounding everyone for an interception. So thinking about what's available to you. So making sure that this child has had a, a basic set of observations. They've had a urine dip if it's appropriate. They've had a blood gas if it's appropriate. They've had a, a set of baseline investigations. So a full blood count, a UNE, CRP, that's usually sufficient in, to give you kind of a, a basic information about the child. I think at that point, if you're really concerned that there is a surgical problem here, at that point, I probably would speak to a pediatric surgeon and then we could probably advise them what's the best next steps. But the things that are available to you would be an abdominal x-ray, which can be really helpful. So you can have a look to see classic things that you look for in abdominal x-ray would be signs of bowel obstruction. So you'd have dilated bowel loops. You may have kind of a lack of gas or a paucity of gas on that right side. And that represents the obstruction of air that can't pass through the interception. And that's what you might see. But what we really rely on would be an, would be an ultrasound scan. And most pediatric A&Es can get ultrasounds. And what we're looking for on the ultrasound is we're looking for the interception. So if you think about it, the interception is a piece of bowel inside a piece of bowel. So if you were to imagine do a cross section through a piece of bowel, you should see one circle. If you have an interception, you've got bowel within bowel. So if you do a cross section of that, you see bowel and inside it you see another circle of bowel and that's what we're looking for on the ultrasound so that's what we call the donut sign so you can see two layers of bowel wall inside each other and that's what we would call pathognomic for interception if you turn the ultrasound probe longitudinally it's what's called a pseudo kidney sign and it's just looking at the bowel wall in different planes and the other things that we could look for would be whether there's a doppler flow into the bowel so whether there's a sign of a blood supply 
is there any inflamed lymph nodes? Is there any free fluid or any signs or secondary signs of peritonitis? Ultrasounds are really helpful for looking at other things. So they also can see, does this child have any features of appendicitis? Can they visualize the appendix? Is there any secondary signs? Is there an appendix mass? So you get a lot of information from an ultrasound that can really help actually decide what you think this problem might be. And you can also look at things like the gallbladder, the kidneys, the bladder itself, and looking for kind of any more unusual causes. But generally speaking, focus ultrasound in the right lymph faucet by a trained pediatric radiologist or a radiologist of pediatric experience is very helpful in that situation. I think with all of that information, that's an appropriate point then to kind of package everything up and make an assessment about whether this child needs then to be transferred. Right. Okay. So ultrasound is probably your most helpful investigation for diagnosis, but it's important Definitely. to get the basics like your routine bloods and urine dip and things like that. Absolutely. And I think the other thing to mention is that you can then go beyond ultrasound for cross-sectional imaging. So we try not to irradiate children, but there is a point that you may consider a cross-sectional imaging, which would be a CT scan or an MRI scan to look at the bowel in more detail. And perhaps in an older child, if you were questioning whether there's a pathological reason for them to have intersusception, you may think about getting more information before you decide to do any surgical intervention. And then there's the more unusual things like a Meckel scan. If you were thinking this is more of a Meckel's picture, which is a radioisotope scan, basically the child has an injection of a radioisotope and it's picked up in different parts of the body. And it normally shouldn't be picked up in the area of where a Meckel's would be. So that's something, but it's, it's a difficult scan to get in most hospitals. So I would have that quite far down the list, but if you're in a centre that could offer that in an older child that you think may have a meckle as the cause of their bleeding, then I would consider that. But ultrasound really is, you get a lot of information from this focus ultrasound. Okay, fantastic. And just for any listeners who might be working in like a DGH rather than like a paediatric centre or a tertiary paediatric surgical centre, is that ability to ultrasound and pick up intussusception on ultrasound something that you're likely to be able to have the ability to do in a kind of a general radiology department or does it require more paediatric expertise and is that something that would then be done after referral to the surgical centre? So generally speaking we ask for an ultrasound but there are some centres that would come back and say we, we can't get it, we don't have it. Particularly in smaller DGHs at the weekend their radiologists may not feel comfortable scanning a child but we would always ask for an ultrasound and I think if in that situation you have to make the best decision for the child if we feel this is really concerning and that they, they don't feel comfortable scanning a child, then in that situation, it might be appropriate to transfer for an ultrasound at a tertiary centre. But in 99% of times, we're usually able to get an ultrasound at the local hospital. And then we would go from there. Right. Okay. Thank you. Moving on now to think about management. What's your kind of management of intussusception? So I think before we get into that, I think the, the thing is for people listening is that you cannot underestimate how sick these children can be. And their resuscitation is the absolute key part of their successful management. It's actually not, if they need an operation, that's actually usually not the most important part. It's the resuscitation and ensuring that we correct their hypovolemia and their sepsis. That is the most important management. So if we say that a child has walked in the door from A&E, if we go through like textbook management, obviously they should be managed per APLS. They should be managed as per ABCDE. We've gone through the standard investigations, but the main thing that I will be looking for would be getting a blood gas seeing if the child has got signs of hypovolemic shock and managing that. So things that I would do, so making sure they've got appropriate IV access. You can be usually typically quite liberal with fluids with these children because they're usually previously fitting well, but really having a low threshold of giving fluid bolus to these children. So I would start with probably a 10 per kilo bolus if the child was not extremely under dehydrated, but I might give a 20 per kilo bolus if they were extremely 
clapped out when they came. So having wide bore, cannulas, getting blood sent, putting up maintenance fluid and a bolus. That is so important. And if we are concerned that there's a surgical abdomen, not necessarily in succession, but there's a surgical abdomen about administering broad spectrum antibiotics. So for us, you know, giving a dose of Comox clavis is would be an appropriate first step. But if this child went on to have a confirmed surgical pathology, they may end up on triple antibiotic cover, but that would be as per your local antibiotic guidelines for intra-abdominal sepsis. So the other thing to say is this child, most likely if they've intersection, will have a bowel obstruction. So we would recommend that all children have a nasogastric tube on free drainage with mill for mill replacement of their losses. So that's it something that's quite commonly not done or the losses aren't replaced. So it's really important that these children are decompressed. And then it's about a case of getting them appropriately resuscitated before you move them anywhere else. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to move a hypovolemic septic child to ultrasound if they're not stable to go and have an ultrasound scan. And that's really important to be able to have the confidence to hold a child for another 10 or 15 minutes, give them another bolus or get your ultrasonographer to come over and scan them in A&E. And don't be afraid to ask for that if the child is not clinically stable. That will be the first wrapping up of managing them. And then I think, as I said, we spoke about the investigations and that often leads you to your diagnosis. So say this child does have intersusception, that is the time critical diagnosis. And if you're in a center that does not offer treatment for intersusception, then that is calling your local pediatric tertiary center and arranging a blue light transfer of this child. I think speaking of transfer, it's really important that this child is safe for transfer because what is not the right thing to do is to transfer a hypovolemic septic child who will then end up in an ambulance, get cold, end up in A&E, you know, the fluid get disconnected and then actually physiologically stable to have further treatment until they're stabilized again on the other side. So I can stress the importance of effective resuscitation enough. That's so, so important. And then I think just making a call, being speedy about transfer, that will be kind of the expected management at the local hospital. Okay. And then what about the more definitive management when they get to a paediatric surgical centre? What happens next? Yeah. So I think the the simple question is, is this child parasitic or not? So when a child comes to us, we will examine them. And I think the first thing to say before they're parasitic is for us to confirm the diagnosis. So we would always repeat an ultrasound, always. So that even if if the ultrasound of the local is is barn door intersection, we will repeat the ultrasound here and confirm that. Because sometimes we find actually that there are false positives and these children do not have intersection or it may have disappeared itself. That's unlikely, but I would start with an ultrasound scan and we would continue on the initiation of the treatment that had started. So obviously fluid management, antibiotics, NG tube, resuscitation is ongoing. And then it's a case of examining the child. So if we say this child got intersection, we've confirmed it on our ultrasound scan. We have to ask ourselves, are they peritonitic or are they not? So we'll take the under three, for example. They're not peritonitic. They're sore, but you know, they haven't got any features to show that there's been intestinal perforation. And then we go down the route, which most children go down, which is air enema reduction. So we have two options. We've got air enema reduction and surgical reduction. So our under threes, we would always try, unless there was a contraindication, to try and reduce this with an air enema. And quite simply, what an air enema is like, to explain it crudely, a tube is placed into the child's rectum and a pump is attached to it, like, like a bicycle pump, but it's a measured pressure. And the colon is insulated with air under pressure and that the colon is filled retrograde. So it's filled backwards from the rectum across the transverse colon and then it hits the intersection. And then the, that pressure is bouncing off that kaleidoscope and it's pushing that bowel back and back and back. And typically this is all done on a live screen. The surgeon and the radiologist is there at the same time 
And typically what you see is you see the intersection, it gets reduced and reduced and reduced. And then all of a sudden you see air that passes into the small bowel, it travels through the ileocecal valve. And it cannot happen unless the intersection has reduced back to the normal anatomy. And that's what an air enema is. And typically what we do is we typically repeat it. We have three attempts in one sitting at three different pressures. And in about 80 to 85% of children that is successful and that treats their intersection. And they go back to the ward. We usually start them on some clear fluids a couple of hours later and they could actually go home the next day if they're completely well. There's a failure rate of 10 to 15% of intersection air enemas. There's also a perforation risk of around 1%. So if you're in the bracket that your air enema has failed and it hasn't worked, then you need surgical intervention. So that under three patient will have an operation to either manually reduce the intersection, so with your hands, or to resect bowel and join it together. So in the institution that I work in, we offer keyhole surgery, not all centers do, but the goal is the same. So it's to visualize the intersection. So typically what you see is you see, you basically see the bowel has been sucked into the next piece of bowel and you basically have to gently not pull because you can damage the bowel, but you gently have to encourage that bowel back to a normal position. If the bowel is unhealthy or you can't do that, then you would do a limited resection. So you do a limited right hemicolectomy. So that would be the terminal ileum and the ascending colon, including the appendix. You would remove that together and do an anastomosis between the ileum and the colon. And then you would send the bowel off to check under the microscope. And typically that just shows what I spoke about, which is the inflamed pears patches. The children would stay in hospital for a couple of days, reinstigate oral intake, and then they usually go home. And that can be done as a keyhole or an open operation. If you're able to reduce the intersection manually or with keyhole surgery and the bowel looks healthy, then that can be enough and actually the same treatment, the child will start feeding, but their recovery is a little bit quicker. That's kind of like the management of the under threes. The over threes, you got to start thinking about, is there anything else going on? So you may decide to get more imaging. And typically, if you think about, well, anyone that's been present for an air enema, like they do not like tubes up their bottom. They hate it. So being able to pin an older child down is very traumatic. So it can be personal preference, but kind of around the age of three or four, I'd be thinking this is going to be very difficult. And those children often will proceed after maybe additional investigation, they may proceed directly to theatre for surgical management of intersection. And that's exactly the same as I spoke about before. So depending on where you work, that may be an open or a keyhole technique, and it may or may not involve removing bowel and joining the bowel back together. But in an older patient, you must think, is there something like a polyp? Is there like a lymphoma? Is there something else going on? So it's really important to be able to feel the bowel if you can. See the bowel, see does it look abnormal. And if you're not sure, take some tissue for a biopsy if you're not resecting bowel. Right, okay, sure, that makes sense. Are there any important post-operative complications to be aware of, or I guess post-procedure complications for air enemas? You mentioned the risk of perforation with air enema. Yeah, so you can have perforations of the colon during an air enema. And basically, if that happens, that the child goes to the theater to manage that perforation and the interception. Post-procedure, we, we quote around a 5% risk of re-interception in the first 24 to 48 hours. So it's really important that these children have kind of repeat abdominal pain. And there's a really low threshold of rescanning the children and checking for interception again. After you've had surgical reduction and potentially a bowel resection, you then worry about things like an anastomotic leak, a post-operative collection, they're kind of things that you would worry about, but that is actually kind of really quite rare. Okay. And presumably the risk of re after a surgical management is much lower? 
It, it is much lower, but it, it's not zero because you can, in theory, if you've just reduced an interception and you haven't taken any bowel away, that risk is higher because the bowel is, that, that affected piece of bowel for whatever reason is still there. I haven't seen it actually. I suspect, and I'm not actually sure why, I haven't seen it after a surgical manual reduction. It, it has been reported. Uh, but the risk of reinterception if you haven't taken bowel away is there. And I think if you do a bowel resection and anastomosis, you usually are taking the right co- part of the right colon and the distal small bowel. So it's kind of removing that piece of bowel that's classically causing it. So maybe that's why it, it's less common. But obviously, you've got your other post-operative complications to consider. Yeah, okay, sure. So just finishing off with our standard quick fire questions, though we've changed these slightly because we're speaking to a surgeon rather than a paediatrician. Firstly, as a surgeon, what would you want a general paediatrician to know about intussusception? What would you ask them about in an exam? So I would want them to understand the pathophysiology of intussusception and just recognizing the signs of a surgical abdomen. So not necessarily being able to say the diagnosis, you know, just by a list of symptoms, but being able to have a more holistic view of the child, their symptoms, and considering the broad differentials, because particularly in that younger age group, you really do have to be a little bit more broad in thinking about what could be causing the problems. And I think the, the other thing I really would like them to know is just about effective, safe resuscitation of surgically unwell children and preventing sepsis and consequences of hypovolemia. Okay, sure. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who might want to find out more about intussusception? I really like the website called patient.co.uk. So I direct a lot of junior doctors, but also families because they have two portals. They've got a portal for doctors and a portal for families. So it, it can be really helpful if you're maybe not familiar with everything to do with intersection, but as, as a clinician, but then you can also print a patient friendly version as well. And that's not just for intersection; It's for lots of different conditions. And the second thing I'm a big fan is, is of, up, of UpToDate. So most trusts will offer a subscription to UpToDate. So just check if your trust offers that subscription because it's continuously, as the name implies, kept up to date. So it's really nice. You can get the most recent up-to-date studies and information. And it's quite nice. You can read it on the go and it's very user-friendly. So they'll be the two things. Actually, the third thing, if anyone wants to read more about pediatric surgery, there's a really good textbook called Pediatric Surgery Secrets, which you can get in most hospital libraries. And it's basically like one page on most conditions and it's done in a really simple question answer format. I really like that. And I think it's really helpful for particularly for preparing for exams. You just want one page on intersection and one page on, you know, variety of things. And it's not too in-depth and I would recommend that. So that book is called Pediatric Surgery Secret. That's really helpful. Thank you. Finally, what would be your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? So my takeaway points, the first thing would be that intersection doesn't always present classically as that classic triad that we spoke about. So just to keep your mind open with assessing children with abdominal pain and, you know, being open to that it may or may not be in susception, but just always having that on the radar. I think the second thing is just having that differentiation between a physiological and a pathological cause for intersection and the age that might change. And that will really help kind of guide your thinking and your management and your investigations. And the third thing, and the most important in my opinion, is recognizing that what often makes these children sick and compromised in intensive care is the consequences of hypovolemia and sepsis. It's not necessarily the physical obstruction. It's the consequences of also things that go with that. So the safe and effective treatment of these children actually is addressing those two problems first whilst working on getting them transferred to the appropriate centre. Right. Okay. Thank you. 
That's been a really wonderful overview of interception. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.